0: You know, I was working as a veterinary assistant. I saw animals being dropped off at, at the office. I was the one holding them as they were getting an injection. They were scared. It was,
1: mm-hmm. you know, we
0: weren't doing a lot to help them through, help the clients through um, all, all of that end of life stuff. And I thought, why, why are we having this experience with humans and not this experience in vet med?
1: That is Dr. Lynn Hendricks, a veterinarian specializing in palliative care. And this is the VIN Foundation's Veterinary Pulse podcast. I'm Jordan Benshia, VIN Foundation's Executive Director. Join me as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics and share stories stories that connect us as humans, as animals as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible by individuals like you who donate to the VIN Foundation. Thank you. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Hey all a quick heads up that some of the content in today's episode may include a trigger as it relates to personal loss and pregnancy. As a reminder, if you are a veterinary student or veterinarian, the VIN Foundation's confidential support group, Vets for Vets, is here for you. And you can find information to reach out in the episode notes. Please know you are not alone. Hi, Lynn. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Jordan. It's great to be here.
1: Well, I'm really excited to discuss this topic because I think it's going to be something that we definitely haven't covered yet in the podcast and um you know whether we like it or not um life and death are two certain aspects of everything that all of us deal with right both humans and animals and so I'm, I'm looking forward to having the conversation of how we help those that we love the beings that we love and cherish um as they get towards their you know elder years shall we say yeah so Um, Let's start by kind of learning about your journey and your story um, to veterinary medicine. So were you one of those kids that from an early age thought, yep, always going to be a veterinarian. I love puppies and kittens, and this is just for sure for me. Or was there more sort of an aha moment for you?
0: Uh, great question. Um, I was the kid that um, was drawn more towards animals than I was people. Um, people mm-hmm. I think early in my life disappointed me a lot. Um, and so I found, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people find with animals and that is that unconditional love. Um, right. You know, I was interested in being a veterinarian because um, those were the people that took care of animals. And so uh, helping animals um, live long and happy and healthy lives um, was something I was interested in. Of course, I I was the kid that read read James Herriot, thought it was all about being James (laughs) Herriot, wanted to be James Herriot. And then, uh, you know, as I got older and um, read more things, I mean, it was really a, a book. Um, that I read later in life called uh, If Wishes Were Horses by a veterinarian named Loretta Gage. Um, and it made me want to go even more. Um, that that particular book is about vet school. Um, mostly it's about, you know, going, getting into vet school, going to vet school. And so when I was trying to get into vet school and um, failing miserably at it, I, 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 you know, that really was kind of my guiding light of you know if she can do it I feel like I could do it and um and I was, it was it it just really drove me.
1: That's wonderful that's it sounds like that that's a story that we often hear from colleagues that it started with really they either had a pet that they really loved and wanted to care for or they just found this sort of true unconditional love in the being of an animal that provided them was really like their heart animal to begin with.
0: Uh, All of my animals were that.
1: Whether it was a hamster,
0: uh, a dog, a cat, (laughs) it did not matter. I just, I I loved them all. my parents found me standing underneath a horse um, when I was two years old, cutting its belly. Um, I had like toddled down the street, you know, back in the days when people had horses down the street. And right. <laughs> they couldn't find me and that's where they found me is underneath this horse. And of course, I don't oh, remember so that, cute. but that's a, that's a story that gets told about me a lot.
1: Um, so That's very endearing. <laughs> So, what was your first job out of veterinary school? Obviously, you, you know you wanted to be a vet. Your your path was that, yeah. and where did it take I, you? Ju-
0: <laughs> because I am the person that I am, I jumped right into emergency medicine.
1: Um, All right, just go right in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I like to challenge myself, um, and so mm-hmm. uh, I uh, and, and I had worked in in emergency medicine prior to um, vet school. So I had several GP jobs where I was an assistant, veterinary assistant. And then uh, I, my last job before vet school was at an emergency clinic and I loved it so much that um, that was my my plan going into vet school and and, um, my plan coming out of vet school. Um, Although part of my plan going into vet school was also about hospice. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, but you know, there wasn't really any organization, et cetera, set up at that time. So my plan was always emergency medicine coming out, um, because it was a challenge. mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And so was it, did emergency medicine draw you in because of the challenge?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will maintain this to, to this day, you know, it fed my brain. Um, but what I learned after about ten years of doing it is that it didn't really feed my soul. And mm, um, mm-hmm. that is uh, you know, that's where I needed a shift in in my way of thinking about veterinary medicine. i I had a job that uh, was so so bad that I almost left veterinary medicine altogether. Um, and uh, and that's kind of how I Got to where I'm, I'm at.
1: Wow. Okay. And and you mentioned that you were interested in hospice going in. What? Where was that? Where did that interest grow for you? Or, or yeah, So I. How did that start?
0: My mother who raised me. Um, I'm adopted, so uh, I. I have to clarify that because then people meet my other mother, my biological mother, and go, but she's still alive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the mother that raised me died. In right. 1993, um, and uh, of lung cancer, and it was my first real experience with death, um, and and mm-hmm. dying, and and hospice um, for her, and I, and it was it was, because it was my mother, um, a very and you know, she was my best friend, and I I, maybe my only friend at that point. Um, because I'm kind of an introvert, uh, you know, it, it was really hard. It was really hard death mm-hmm. um, and loss, and the hospice people made it worth living for me. Um, they yeah. helped me um, in ways that they probably don't even know to this day. Um, they kept me from following her. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of complicated grief after her loss Uh, Mm -hmm. and once I kind of came out the other side of all of that um, I thought you know I was working as a veterinary assistant I saw animals being dropped off at at the office I was the one holding them as they were getting an injection they were scared it was
1: Mm
0: -hmm. you know we weren't doing a lot to help them through help the clients through um, all, all of that end of life stuff, and I thought, why are, why, why are we having this experience with humans, and not this experience in vet med? And even then, I, I was planning on going to vet school, um, and I, I thought, well, we really need to, we really need to. You know, change up what we do in veterinary medicine. Um, You know, I so so that's that's kind of my journey there. Um, I went to my vet school interview in in 1998, talking about hospice for animals, and uh, everybody there was intrigued. They were like, you know, this is kind of mind blowing stuff. What (laughs) we've never heard of this before. Um, And so it, it, you know, after my mother died, after I got through my complicated grief, um, I started studying uh, because that's kind of my forte of of being (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. get interested in something and I just go research. Uh, it like crazy and go to the you know library um now we can do most of that stuff online but at at the time I would go to the library and I'd look stuff up I'd you know get on the internet whatever it was in
1: 1996
0: right AOL I think we were past AOL I think we had Netscape and some other things right
1: yep there is there is Netscape I remember that
0: so um you know (laughs) you know, I started looking up animal hospice. And there was really nothing, nothing out there. Nobody was really talking about it. Nobody was really doing anything in that realm. The first person I found that had um, any information on was Eric Clough. And uh, I think he was in Pennsylvania. And I think he gave the first lecture that I can find um, in 90, I want to say it was 98 uh, at uh avma um titled something about animal hospice i, I don't remember what the t- exact title was um, but that that was the first uh internet information that i could find there was nothing in writing nobody was writing about it um, and of course there were other people doing things alice villalobos was down in southern california you know um, kind of starting her hospice experience. There was Amir Shanon in Chicago, he, you know, who Tammy Shearer, in Tennessee, I think she's in Tennessee. I mean, so there were there were individuals, uh, it, but not nobody was really going into onto the national stage. There was no organization, nothing um, at that time. So when I came into the vet school interview, talking about it, people, people were just blown away. Like, so tell me more about this. And honestly, I didn't really know what I know now. Um, you know, I, a lot of, a lot of people thought that, you know, and and still, this is one of the myths that are out there that, that hospice and euthanasia are the same thing. Um, and they're not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, that's kind of, uh, Kind of, kind of where I, I stepped in, and then there was a Nikki Hospice Foundation was founded I think in '98 or '99 um, by uh, Catherine Maraschino, uh, who's a professor at a university in California, and um, she uh, had she she's not a veterinarian she's a layperson who um, had a traumatic end of life experience with her cat named Nikki. Um, So she wanted to start an organization that could develop, um, education for veterinarians, uh, to better the experience for clients. So she comes at it from the client perspective. Um, so once I, I got into vet school in, in 98, um, and, uh, they, um, I was part of. I was a student member of their organization, and I want to say 2000. I think it was my junior year that I did that. Um, <laughs> 2000-ish, <laughs> 99, 2000, uh, <laughs> somewhere in there. Um, and uh, uh, so that was kind of kind of my early experiences with animal hospice.
1: Wow, what a story. I mean, that that must have been very rare for a veterinary school to have a student coming in saying they wanted to focus on end of life, right? Versus you don't have... It's not the sense I get from a majority of veterinary students that they come into veterinary school saying, I'd like to discuss end of life, right? Uh, but that, you know, kudos to you for exploring that and wanting to dive into it further. And so where is that, I mean... I'm going to say passion, because it sounds like it's a passion of yours. Where has that led you to now? And what is your current role in the veterinary profession? Yeah, so, um,
0: as I said, I, I I went in to my interview talking about animal hospice, I came out and became an emergency doctor. So <laughs> <laughs> got process, <laughs> process um, <laughs> through... Um, and, uh, really, um, it, 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 I was in emergency medicine for about 10 years, um, and I got, had a bad job, um, really bad, psychologically damaging bad, thought about leaving the profession altogether because it, you know, people threaten to kill you and all sorts of (sighs) nastiness. Um, not only that, but the system that the place that I was working, the system was broken, The the management was bad, they were accusatory, um, rather than team building, they, you know, it was just it just was all around, uh, uh, not a great place to work. Um, they hired people to <laughs> tattle to tattletale on other people. I mean, it, it's just Oh. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, they, I mean, you know, I had a miscarriage. Um, that's probably too much information for the audience, but, uh, and they they talked about with me on the phone about firing me because of a mis staying home for oh a miscarriage. Oh my
1: gosh, Lynn! <laughs> oh my gosh. So,
0: um, so you know, it. They, then they asked me to. Um, they were opening up to be twenty four hours, and they asked me to i come and do an extra shift um, i was working weekends and i had a small child at the time and um they asked me to work an extra day and i said i said give me 24 hours and i'll let you know and if i can make arrangements to do that and um 24 hours later it was february 20th at 2 p.m um, <laughs> funny how i know that uh <laughs> in 2011 That uh, I called in to say sure I can do that, and then they read me how I sucked as a human being. Oh my
1: gosh!
0: What changed? (laughs) What changed 24 hours ago? Right, that was weird. Um, And so uh, I went to work uh, that weekend and um, started writing a business plan uh, in my off time, not not while I was working. Right, Um, but. That's kind of how I shifted um, my focus of emergency medicine to what is my passion, Um, obviously. Here I am talking about it and writing about it and such. Um, And so that is really uh, kind of where I I jumped onto this, um, onto this, where I'm at.
1: Wow. I mean, I can't even, I mean, I know that you said it might be too much to share with the audience, but I know that there are many people that have struggled with similar situations. And I think that you sharing that and being willing to be vulnerable about that and have the courage to discuss it. I really applaud you because it'll allow others to feel more connected and not as alone. Right. And I can only imagine how phenomenally challenging that must have been to be in that position and to have beyond no support, just yeah. just unkindness at that point from the employer who really, I mean, legally definitely can't say that. <laughs> let alone, let alone just as a human, not, you know. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I wish I, I don't know what to say. I'm just, I'm very, very sorry that you went through that experience. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, you know, we all go through these kind of experiences you know, mm-hmm. it varies, I mean, I, I, to you know, what what kind of traumatizing things human beings do to one another. But, um, um, it, you know, one of the things that I learned with my complicated grief, and one of the reasons why I could go in after that conversation and still work, was that we can move through it. You know, we have mm-hmm. to feel those feelings and and be present and do the those that work, um, but we can. You know, life continues, and and grief continues. Grief doesn't go away. Um, there's no mm-hmm. end point to grief. Um, it is with right. you. It changes you. It shifts your world. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, every time that you have a experience, a loss of any kind, um, you can have earth shattering, shifting um, or, you know, time shifts, so to speak. Um, uh, Different tracks that you go on or, um, uh, or, you know, they may be a little thing. I mean, to to me, for me to lose a car um, used to be, Life shifting loss because I get attached to everything, <laughs> um, including my cars. Um, you know, but some people can zoom out cars left and right. That's I mean, <laughs> just what they right. do. So, um, you know, if I lose my phone, it would be life shifting because <laughs> <laughs> I'm married to it. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, um, but you know, losing losing a baby. Um, it is one of those life-shifting uh events and, and peop-
1: literally. people literally don't
0: realize yeah. how hard it is to have a miscarriage um for for women you know, mm-hmm. you know we could yeah we could go into uh right. what's going on in the world right now in the united states but i think we'll shift back to palliative medicine
1: okay Maybe we'll shift <laughs> back to palliative care <laughs> <laughs> So for the audience members that, you know, might be new to this concept, can you help us understand for our listeners and myself as well, Mm -hmm. what's the difference between euthanasia and palliative medicine? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's the difference between palliative medicine, palliative care, hospice? And how does this all parallel with the human medicine? Because you mentioned hospice before, and I for whatever reason have a lot of experience being with people that i love going through hospice and so uh i know that pretty well from that experience but i don't you know i haven't experienced that from an animal perspective Mm -hmm. and so i'd love if you can kind of share with us some insight into what those differences are how they're sort of defined and how we can kind of you know i think us as humans, we understand hospice because we are engaged with it, right? But if if hospice is from an animal perspective, we might not know exactly what that means, we could presume, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I'd love to kind of hear from you some more about the differences between those. Right.
0: So I'll I'll start with euthanasia, because that's what um, probably most of people in the audience are is uh, familiar with, or have some experience with. Um, You know, euthanasia is Is about the end of the life of the animal. And that's it. Euthanasia is really just about how they leave this planet when they die. Um, You know, people tend to think of euthanasia in lots of different ways. It's defined as good death, et cetera. Um, But uh, essentially, there are a lot of ways for people and animals to leave the planet, as I like to call it. Um, You know, you can be eaten by a shark, you can be blown up. A terrorist event, so we could die peacefully in our, our beds. I mean, lots, lots of different ways to leave this planet. You know, most people think of going to sleep and not waking up is the optimal way for human beings to die. Well, most people think that
1: um, <laughs> there's that, they probably think that because they think that that's the least painful, right? right? It's,
0: it's essentially a mm-hmm. heart attack. But you're just not conscious and aware of it, mm-hmm. um, so your mm-hmm. heart stops, and and you you know people find you passed away. Um, mm-hmm. In uh, there's actually a study out there that they asked people you know what's the optimal way to die, um, and ninety percent of people said going to sleep in their beds. Ten percent said no. <laughs> I'm not sure how else they want to go um, because they didn't go into that detail in the study. Um, but I've actually talked to clients about that. And I, most people who who are in that 10% um, say that it is they they want to be awake and aware um, and surrounded by the people who they love. Um, and so to me, euthanasia is about that. You know, to, to, to be able to allow the animal to be surrounded by the people they love be awake and aware mm-hmm. and then fall asleep on their bed or in a lap um, and mm-hmm. just pass away there. That, mm-hmm. that to me is a good death. And that's what we try to accomplish. So that's what euthanasia is. It's just, it's just about the how uh, of death. It's, it, it's nothing else. Um, it's about the how. Palliative okay. medicine is really the study of medical intervention that creates comfort and gives education and support to the family and caregivers. So it creates comfort for the pet, and it gives education and support um, to not only the pet, but to the the, um, family that's taking care of those pets. Um, Palliative medicine is mostly for chronic progressive and terminal chronic progressive disease and terminal illness. Um, and, uh, and, and palliative medicine is also about the education and practice for the medical provider. So the veterinarian in this case, in human medicine, mm-hmm. that would be the medical doctor. Um, palliative care, on the other hand, is similar. Um, but it's more about the team effort that goes into the dying patient the caregivers. So the nurses that are involved, the you know social workers, mental health providers, pharmacists, um, groomers in the case of a dog, um, or hairdressers in the case of a, a person. I mean, whoever can come mm-hmm. into the person or the pet space, um, that can help them and help the caregivers family take care of that patient um, is mm-hmm. what palliative care is about. That can be provided. Both those things can be provided early in the disease, so that mm-hmm. they, if uh, you know your animal gets diagnosed with osteoarthritis, you can start palliative care then. You know mm-hmm. and you should you know the there's a study out there uh jennifer i've called her timel for a long time but i just heard her on a podcast and it's actually timel <laughs> um jennifer Timmel. um did and had a group uh, she's a oncologist who is also a palliative medicine specialist um and she wrote they did a paper back in 2010 in the new england journal of medicine um that showed that um, starting palliative care early in the disease process um, not only made people live better, but they lived longer. Um, and that is certainly something that I have seen. I, I know other colleagues have also seen that um, with mm-hmm. with patients. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I've had patients with hemangiosarcoma, which usually, Statistically speaking, has, whether you do surgery or not do surgery, has a lifespan of um, one to two, possibly four months with surgery. So it it's n- not a long-lived disease, statistically speaking. But I've had patients who've gone 10, 12, and I had one that lived 20 months. And the one that lived 20 months wow. not only had... He was diagnosed at the university. He had tumors in his spleen and his liver and his lungs and his lymph nodes. At diagnosis, we thought,
1: wow, they got
0: told one to two months, so they opted not to pursue anything further. Um, and they called me in, and then he just kept going and going. And he had nineteen and wow. a half really great months, occasional yeah. day off of bleed, and then he would bounce right back and and be going steam ahead again um and so you know those are outliers those are not the common ones but we can't we we don't know who's going to be the outlier Mm -hmm. who's you know Mm going to live longer um so i think um, just with palliative care this dog lives a long long time and he also lives um really well for most of that time um, he started to decline yeah. about 19 and a half months into that 20 month period. Wow. So, um, animal hospice, uh, which is, uh, you know, the hot topic these days. And, and there's an organization that I used to be part of the uh, IAAHPC, um, which stands for the International Association of Animal Hospice and Palliative Care. Um, you know, we we wrote the first guidelines. Um, AHA picked up guidelines they you know, with uh, the IWAHPC and wrote shorter guidelines. Um, uh, AVMA has guidelines, so there's some some guidelines out there. But we were the first ones to uh, really write um, about that. And it was you know produced in 2013. I think they've updated one or two times since then. Uh, you know, we talked about what to call it, uh, what to call cause we were kind of on the hospice focus, um, animal hospice is really just the end stage of palliative care. Um, and, okay. uh, they opted for animal hospice. I'm an advocate for veterinary hospice because mm-hmm. then you're going to have medical professionals involved. Um, it, it, I think if. I see this these days that there are people who are getting certified um who are lay people, uh-huh. no medical experience whatsoever um and they're doing things for people that may or may not be useful at all um but people don't know that there's a difference between you know animal hospice um which is just about the animal and veterinary-based hospice. It should be veterinary-based because you need to have medical professionals involved in the intervention of the animal so that they don't have pain and suffering.
1: So when you say veter- veterinary hospice, mm-hmm. is that is that what you're talking about when you talk about evidence-based medicine playing a role? Well... Or how does that... If you can help untangle that for us.
0: Yeah. So evidence-based medicine is uh, basically what science is, is based on, <laughs> what medicine's based on, um, which is science. Um, so evidence-based means that uh, studies have been done, they should be double-blinded um, with mm-hmm. controls and, uh, you know, have, have peer reviews and things like that um, to make sure that there's not internal bias involved in, um, in the evidence um, and that the conclusion isn't based on our own internal biases and we all have them. Um, you know I, I could create a study where I said, you know the sky is blue and then I would go out of my way to just prove that um, or you know maybe I said the sky is green and I would go out of my way to prove. That rather than looking at what the wavelengths were and, and such, so that's that's what an internal bias would be. If I decided if if my perception of things um, was the only perception, then you know, and I didn't see blue, I saw green. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would see it as as green. So internal biases are based on our our personal perceptions. Um, we really need to have evidence base um, for any medication any therapy that we're giving Um, and uh, that way we hopefully make sure that they're a not harmful um, or b doing something Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know for the pet so so frequently we have um we can all jump on the bandwagon about something and that that's mm-hmm. where that internal bias belief system comes in or we try something out right we there's uh something that could be tried out and then the evidence shows that well that probably doesn't work in the way that we thought that maybe it, it did work um i mean covid had a lot of that going on um because we all the whole world got to see science in 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 real time. Um, we were all sort of the petri dish, so to speak, <laughs> with COVID. Right, right. Um, and then, you know, had the conversations around what works, what doesn't work, um, and, you know, the evidence of uh, whether that those things work or, or don't work. So looking at the peer reviews and, and, and the evidence. And I think that that should be the case for everything. Well, I think where mm-hmm. people get confused, um, and, and especially with COVID, uh, is that it, you know if you're if you're looking at an experiment in real time, which was essentially what COVID has been.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> You know, we're just living through this experiment day by day.
0: (laughs) Everybody is using their internal biases and belief systems um, Mm -hmm. rather than looking at um, the actual graph. You know, did this work? Did this not work? Um, And so uh, that that is where it gets confusing. Um, And science finds different conclusions. And part of the reason Mm -hmm. why science finds different conclusions is because our internal biases get involved in, um, in in some of our findings. So that just happens. Um, that just happens. Uh, So that's, that's, I think any therapy, anything that we do, especially for end of life patients should have an evidence base. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think outside the box. I mean, I have a book coming out uh, that where I looked at everything that I did in the medicine section was, um, is I looked at what they, what do they do for human beings for this particular Mm -hmm. thing, situation, um, et cetera. And I, and how could we, how could I translate that into veterinary medicine? You know, so if I found that they used a particular drug, um, I look in the veterinary literature about whether or not we have ever used that drug before for that particular thing. If it was found to be or not be, and if it was found and not be useful, then um, I would drop it. Uh, and I, I mm-hmm. would write about it, um, if it if we'd never used it before or for that particular reason. Um, and then I would go uh, actually on uh, VIN and, and other places and ask internal medicine specialists or oncologists or, you know, whatever specialist um, if they had ever used that particular thing. So I would try to get Mm -hmm. some peer review um, even before I wrote about it. If I couldn't find any reason why we couldn't use a drug, I'd include it and say Mm -hmm. more studies absolutely need to be done. But right. here's something they do in human medicine. Maybe we could consider doing it in veterinary medicine.
1: It, yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like, I mean, you know, the real trick here is that us as humans, depending on what disease we might have or we, what we might be struggling with at the end of life, for we tend to have the free will and capability to express and communicate what we want, right? right? And what's working versus not. And obviously animals don't have that advantage, right. And so, um, you know, hospice in humans versus hospice and palliative care in, in animals drastically different because of that. And so you're really left trying to assess based on really needing to be extremely observant of the animal, right. Yes, I
0: just (laughs) it's funny because I just gave rounds at UC Davis um, Uh on kind of that very subject. You know, I mean, the title of the rounds was what is suffering. Um, Mm -hmm. But we talked about um, observation and perception um, because, you know, how how do you make these judgments? How do you determine pain in in Mm -hmm. human medicine? Mm -hmm. They have a saying pain is what the patient says it is. You know, if right. I think pain is ten and you think it's one, who's who's right? Right, right? The, the person yeah. experiencing Let's the go. pain.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Let's go with the one experiencing it. And that's tricky because, especially for a small animal, right? Cats and dogs are both really good at, you know, hiding that pain. So
0: it's not right? so much that they're good at hiding it; it's that they're mm-hmm. subtle about it, um, and, okay, that, there you go. and that the observer yeah. is actually the issue here. <laughs>
1: Well, obviously, it's all—it's of course us humans with the issues. Let's be really, really clear.
0: <laughs> so, I i mean, that I i kind of find that to be a myth, um, that animals hide their pain uh,
1: because they... We just need to listen better. We, we right? need to observe better.
0: Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and I use this example uh, when I talk to students a lot. I say, you know, who in here has a headache? And a few people will raise their hand. And I go, how many people knew they had a headache before they just raise their hand, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe a hand or two will go up. It's usually a person sitting next to them because they've said something to that person, right? right? (laughs) And I then we'll say, well, how many of you would have known they had a headache if they didn't tell you? Mm -hmm. No hands go up. Right. Because observing pain is different. Observing Mm -hmm. pain is different. So, um, you know, uh, and one of the things that the students and I just talked about was, you know, in human medicine, they've identified, um, they've looked at mild, moderate, severe pain, what do people report? Um, and mm-hmm. I, when I talk to clients about it, I say, think about it in terms of a headache, because most people can understand having a headache, they might not be able to understand, uh, you know, a chronic pain in another way, especially if they're 20 right. something years old, your client. Mm-hmm. Um, so but yeah. they've had a headache probably at one point in their life. So mild headaches, what do they do? They continue to live their life. They, they still go to work. They still do things. You know, they don't, it doesn't really affect um, their life that much. When it gets to be moderate, there's some mild changes in behavior. When it gets to severe, there's severe changes in behavior, Right. When we have a severe headache, we're in the bed and under the covers and in a dark room. And, you know, um, we're we're doing some major changes to our behavior. We usually pull drugs when we're in moderate pain. So um, it, it understanding that there are different, you know, everything that we're talking about is coming from the perception of the human and not the perception of the animal. So if we're looking at animal behavior, are they changing their behavior? Could they still be in pain? Yes. Right. If they're changing their behavior, they're at least in moderate pain, according to humans.
1: Right. Right. If they're, and it's hard to know, like my dog happens to be, you know, struggling with this like cyst in or paw. And I can tell yeah. that it's a, it's a, she's struggling with it. I guess my question is really how much is she struggling with it and how, and how good, how can we really know that? Right. I think that's part of the trick is like, when you start to observe it, is that then, okay, it's severe or it's, you know, let's be really clear. There's a squirrel, she's still running. Right.
0: So, <laughs> so, so I would say, you know, so- it's between mild and moderate because she's yeah, she's I, still able to do things right. she would normally do. If it was severe, she would stop doing that.
1: Right. Right. Even for bacon probably wouldn't right. run. Maybe. <laughs> so maybe, maybe. So do you have um, you know, how how do you have sort of steps or suggestions like if if there are, you know, veterinary colleagues that are looking to kind of find more interest in palliative care and think this is something that they want to help their clients with, are there, like, how do they help clients identify goals for caring for their pets um, around palliative care? Whereas a veterinarian do they start?
0: Well, we, we could go on and on all day. <laughs>
1: Okay, let's do the shortened version, and then we can definitely, as always, we will put we'll put links in the episode notes, so we'll we'll have a lot more information available. But we do we don't we don't want to take keep these too long because then nobody will ever listen. Right. Um,
0: I, so you know in general what I say is if you've made a diagnosis that is chronic and progressive or terminal, you should be. Starting palliative care at that moment. Um, if you if you're not comfortable starting palliative care, you should refer to a palliative care veterinarian. Um, there's not a lot of us out there. Um, most of the people who are doing end of life care are doing euthanasia only or mostly, um, but there are there are a few people out there that are um, actually doing palliative care. I, uh, you know, that's number one uh for for veterinarians they they should start immediately the two I would say getting getting more information about uh and I have a book coming out um so I'm gonna say maybe let's uh you know that will help um I have a nerd book chapter i think coming out um as well um
1: yep yeah, we could should say that the nerd book is yeah that is a part of the VIN foundation. And so we have a lot of amazing, wonderful <laughs> veterinarians working on updates all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I, I, I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> I don't know when, what the timeline is there, but hopefully my, we're best.
1: working on it. Okay. okay. All right, all, right, all, right. all right. I assure you it's being worked on. Um, it is a weekly ongoing effort.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, for clients, um, I, I would say, you know, if their if their pet has been diagnosed with a chronic progressive or terminal illness, um, then they need to uh, start looking into um, palliative care. It, you know, specific steps. I mean there's all sorts of things that um, you can do for palliative care and palliative medicine, uh, but uh, to know when they need it it should be at the beginning. If you haven't done it at the beginning, let's say you just think as a client, your dog's getting old and they're, um, and they're you know, slowing down and, and not doing the things that they used to do, um, and you just feel like they're old, then uh, that would be, uh, you know, a time to maybe consider talking to your veterinarian about some palliative care. Um, you know, maybe they need, Uh, additional support. Uh, Maybe you need additional support. I mean, a hospice being just the end of end stage of palliative care is, uh, you know, maybe maybe they're at that point. I don't know if they're at that Mm -hmm. point. Maybe they need um, more information about disease trajectories and, you know, what dying looks like and, uh, Mm you know, pain scales, that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of things um, that they can specifically do talking with their veterinarian. Um, But I think the number one thing, if if you have a dog or cat or horse or goat or fish or tarantula. (laughs) um,
1: (laughs) Equal opportunity animal.
0: (laughs) Mosquito, if you have those as fresh animal. A
1: cockroach. (laughs)
0: You know, whenever I philosophize about it, whether there's life after death, I always think, but what about cockroaches? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> do they have consciousness? Um, there you uh, go. So, what about ants? I mean, I have a lot of ants in my kitchen sometimes. <laughs> Am I sending them on Is to their palliative
1: concert? care that I can offer them?
0: <laughs> I can offer them euthanasia. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, that that that's kind of the I think that's the number one step is is to mm-hmm. uh, if you're a, at that point start it now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that, that's kind of where where I would start.
1: And and if colleagues are interested in learning more about palliative care, we'll put some links in the episode notes so that people can learn more and read more. Um, you know I really appreciate all first of all your dedication to this area of the field thank you you so much for trying to make our animals lives better throughout their life you know I I remember when I got my dog and I got her at um, I rescued her at three and a half months and people said to me oh you're so lucky she's a puppy like I wish mine was a puppy and I just thought like Oh, I mean, I wish I I wish mine was a puppy every day because that way I get more time with her. But I also just want to appreciate her at every stage of her life. Right. And it's so often that people tend to really want shiny new things. Right. And really, these animals are amazing creatures throughout their whole life. And the more that we can do to help provide comfort and enjoyment for them, um, I think is, is so important. And especially when you see these numbers coming out of COVID of people that adopted animals and now we're going back to work and the struggle animals are having because of that. And just remembering that they are these beings that, you know, from an, from a pet owner perspective, being aware of that. And then I, I so appreciate that you're taking the time and effort and have the passion for this so that we can all learn how we can better improve animals lives. Cause that's, You know, that's, that's the mother load. That's what we're all here for, right? Is to do everything we can to help these animals that we deeply, deeply, deeply love. Um, so I want to, you know, we try to keep these not too long so that ideally people listen. <laughs> um, but there is one question that I always like to ask people yeah. at the end. And that is, um, do you have a secret talent or something that you enjoy doing that other people might not know about? Cause I find this is something that I ask these questions and sometimes I think like I know the person pretty well. So I'm like, Oh, for sure. I know what they're going to say. And it's never the answer that I think. So... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I well, um, I can say a lot of things, but um, <laughs> I, will, I will say that I I, I love Star Wars. I, I also love Star Trek, so I'm, I, I do okay. both. Um, but okay. I sew um, and I and I costume. so I um, I make noble outfits for Renaissance fairs. I've made uh, wow. 1800 uh, type outfits for Dickens Fair. Um, oh, my gosh. I've made Jedi outfits for going to Disneyland. So I, I've done a lot. Oh, of my
1: things. gosh. That's so cool. Yeah. That is so cool. That's what a great talent to have. <laughs> that's very impressive. And again, if I it was like choose something that you think you might know about Lynn. I mean, we've just relatively met. But that's still I love hearing these things. Yeah, so. Thank you so Uh, much, Lynn. Thank you for your time and effort. And again, really your dedication to helping the animals that we love. And it really, um, it's really an impressive and courageous path. And um, thank you for being willing to be brave and have, you know, the courage to share your story with us. Uh, There's a lot of touching aspects there and ones that I know are not easy. And I really, really appreciate your time and effort. So thank you so much. I
0: appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Jordan.
1: Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.